Oh, well, good evening, uh, everybody. Firstly, I'll introduce myself. My name is Professor Michael Cox. I'm here in the Department of International Relations here at the school, uh, at the LSE. So welcome to this uh, public lecture uh, this evening. Um, last week, uh, you may remember, I'm sure you do, uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, spies in America, and I was rung up by all sorts of uh, dubious newspapers, um, uh, one or two less dubious, asking me what I thought about spies. And the, and the thing that came out time and time again, it reminded me of, of, of what's in Peter's book in some ways. As you know, why is this relic of the Cold War living on in the United States? Um, uh, this morning I was at a, a small one-day conference. As you remember, this is the 7th of July, after all. Uh, five years uh, on from the atrocities in London and I was attending a conference on in a sense the secret state counterterrorism is now part of a whole area of discussion about threats and uh, what faces us and the dangers that we uh, we confront and the more and more I kind of thought about what the events of last week with things which should no longer exist, namely old-fashioned Russian spies living in boring American suburbs. And, uh, and then this morning uh, at this conference, Peter, the more and more I thought about uh, your book and the kinds of issues and questions, and dare I even say it for an historian, the kinds of lessons uh, that, it, that it raises for thinking about the past, the uses of history, and the ways in which, if anything, we can try and suggest some ways forward in the rather difficult and dangerous times in which we, we now live. Uh, I'm delighted, uh, of course, to invite Peter, uh, an old friend uh, from many years back, um, at the great university, uh, Queen Mary University of London, uh, one of my favourite, my second favourite uh, institution in London, I'm bound to say. Uh, Peter is the Attlee Professor of Contemporary British History at QMUL, and was recently elected a fellow of the British Academy, as well as being an honorary fellow of the LSE, which I'm very pleased to know. Before joining the department um, over on the Mile End Road, as I always like to say, great place, in 1992, he was a journalist for 20 years with spells on the Times as a leader writer and Whitehall correspondent, he was with the Financial Times. Peter, I think you were also the first person to be allowed into the archives on the, the very first day when they were released, weren't you? When they yes. gave out the news. So I always used to hear you on January the 1st. Was it you? Mm -hmm. It was you. Definitely you. Anyway, he's been a regular presenter on BBC4 Radio Analysis. And um, he's co-founder of the Institute of Contemporary British History. Peter's got an enormous bibliography, a fantastic range of things to think about. And I'd like to give you uh, Peter Hennessy to speak this evening on the secret state, preparing for the worst, 1945-2009. Peter, welcome back to the LSE. Thank you. Good. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Mick, very much for that very warm welcome. It's always nice to come back to the school. I should point out I was on the Times long ago and far away when it was still a quality newspaper. <laughs> Indeed, we were brought up to think that the first language of our readership was Latin, and in those days it might well have been. I'm going to go back to those days a bit this evening. I want to talk about catch-up history, the notion of catch-up history, as well as preparing for the worst in the Cold War. Because a key but often overlooked element in the historian's trade, I think, is that we are constantly dealing with unfinished business. 
We are, or should be, haunted by what we miss, let alone by what we fail to understand, in our attempt to pick up the particles and the patterns of the past. Sometimes it's a matter of big things, not just a question of granules or minute particulars. It makes scholars, or should do, I think, edgy in the benign sense of that word, the old-fashioned sense of that word, a kind of divine edginess, perhaps, that runs along the divine spark of curiosity. There is, however, a sub-branch of our collective unfinished business that brings a touch of consolation, and that's what I mean by catch-up history, when one gets the chance to do so. Although even that's always incomplete. And it's this that's been the motivation for the writing of The Secret State, the first issue of which came out in 2002, with a slight update in 2003, and now the new one, which is double the size of the originals. And to peer into that bit of the post-war British state, which for understandable and obvious reasons had to be kept under serious wraps while the Cold War lasted, is the motivation. We all knew there would be deep insider stuff on civil and home defence, nuclear retaliation procedures, as well as the minutes and the memoranda of the cabinet committees that made us a nuclear power and decided to keep us a nuclear weapons state. We all knew about that, but a very high proportion of it was kept back beyond 30 years. And not until the Cold War ended did that change in a cornucopic way. And I'll explain a bit more of the genesis of that in a minute. The consolation for me of this kind of catch-up history is all the greater because I didn't expect the Cold War to end in my lifetime. I thought the best we could hope for was what Elliot Richardson called a safer, cheaper form of deadlock. <laughs> and that's what most realistic people, I think, probably would have said until pretty much the hours, the last hours of the Cold War. And that it did end in my lifetime and without global war and nuclear exchange remains, I think, the greatest shared boon of our era by a very long way for all our current anxieties. I'm very much a child, as Mick is, of what Michael Frayn called the Uranium Age, like the Bronze Age, Stone Age, and so on. We grew up in the shadow of the bomb. We were the children of the threat, as a Swedish diplomat once said. Mick and I sprang, up, sprang from the womb almost together, although in different parts of the country, in 1947 just as the wretched Cold War got underway. On that theme of the ending of the Cold War, it's now become a cliché to upbraid the Western intelligence agencies for failing to predict the demise of the Soviet Union and the politico-economic system on which it rested. I've never taken that view. Even if MI6 had possessed a human agent inside Mikhail Gorbachev's most innermost circle in the late 1980s, he or she would not have been able to outline the coming geopolitical soft landing in snatch conversations with his or her MI6 controller because Mr Gorbachev, as he explained when he was in London last month, had no intention of the Soviet Union falling apart. It was the last thing he wanted. He said to Mary Jajewski last month, we should have pre prevented it, mostly though I reproach myself even today. I think we went too fast. A country with our history should have taken an evolutionary course. I said reforms would need 20 or 30 years, but such passions were raging as Glasnost and Perestroika gained pace, and the calls, he said, thumping the table at this point in the interview, were mostly to go faster, faster, to go on, go on, go on. British intelligence was plagued, of course, in the Cold War by the old secrets and mysteries problem. It's always plagued by a secrets and mysteries problem. It just changes its configurations over time. And during the Cold War, 
The hardest intelligence task was to divine the mysteries of the other side, the intentions of successive Soviet leaderships, rather than the Soviet Union's secrets, by what I mean by secrets, the capability of the Warsaw Pact's weapon systems, its orders of battle. That was quite tough, but it became much easier from 1960 onwards when the first satellites went up. But even if GCHQ had managed to wire up Mr Gorbachev's little grey cells, they could not have presented the Joint Intelligence Committee in the Cabinet Office with an advanced copy of the story as it is actually to unfold. As a friend of mine in the intelligence business said the other day after the Gorbachev interview appeared in The Independent, speaking of people like the former Soviet leader, they are often mysteries unto themselves. And I think we have to remember that, actually. It's a crucial, crucial aspect of human intelligence work. I mean, we all know that. I don't want to get deep. I'm not known for my psychobabble, but we're all a bit like that, aren't we? But certainly, I think leaders are, for the most part, mysteries unto themselves. But back to our, our own secrets, our old Cold War secrets, and attempts of my own, my colleagues and my students to get them out of the deep freeze, to warm up the old documents until their metaphorical limbs begin to twitch, their lungs begin to fill with air, and they begin to talk to us. Because that's what being in the National Archives is all about. It's frozen history. It's frozen history, and you have to get it to move and twitch and talk. And in terms of that, this catch-up Cold War history, we owe a very great deal to William Waldegrave, John Major's Cabinet Office Minister with responsibility for open government in the early to mid-90s. And it was a very considerable historical breakthrough, it turns out, I think, when in an interview with me for the BBC Radio 4 analysis programme on freedom of information, he invited historians to let him know which files had been held back longer than 30 years they would like Whitehall to re-review and to see if they could now be released to the National Archives. And the Institute of Contemporary British History held two Saturday morning meetings in which we came with shopping lists. And we were well primed to do so because those of you who work in the National Archives will know very often in the catalogues there is a description of the file even if you can't have it. And one of the problems with freedom of information is you don't know what there is to ask for. And also, um, I do love my trade and my colleagues deeply, but we are obsessional nerds. And obsessional nerds are the best people for getting stuff out because they stick with it. And we met with the departmental record officers from Whitehall and the public record office staff, and a benign cycle got underway. And it turned out to be very impressive indeed. I think William Waldegrave is a good chap, but we historians... Um, I mean, it's so rare to have a minister who not only is a good chap of either sex, but reads things, particularly history. And he really does. I mean, we hit gold at the right time with William. So, the Waldgrave Initiative, I christened it, by way of gratitude. And the Waldgrave Initiative ran from about 1992-93 to 1998, because when Labour came in, because they haven't invented it, they stopped tallying the number of files that had come out under the Walgrave Initiative. But by 1998, some 96,000 files had been liberated by this process. And the process continues to this day, because quite a lot of my research students ask for material under the Walgrave Initiative. The problem with freedom of information, though it's a good thing, is you get individual files. And for scholarly purposes, you need great runs of material, what they call in the trade proactive releases. And without that, you can't do proper scholarly work. So the Walgrave Initiative is the best way we still have of getting large runs of material um, declassified. And I think the tally now must be well over 150,000 files released under the Walgrave process. Many, many of them Cold War related. <clears throat> Some of them dealing with 
for example, nuclear retaliation procedures, of a sensitivity that I didn't think we would see, actually. I remember talking to one of the cabinet office figures in the last big phase of the Cold War, who was responsible for the nuclear retaliation drills, and of course under political control, and he said to me once that the one secret I thought I'd have to take to my grave was the nuclear retaliation procedures, and there they all are. Well, they're not quite all there, of course, but um, a good many of them are, certainly from the days before um, Trident. Now, the so-called Waldgrave Initiative, I think, gave us a substantial new historical currency with which to trade. That's the way to look at it. And the product is a growing number of books, articles, and theses at the PhD, master's, and undergraduate levels. It is... There is a value in it for the Whitehall insiders, too, because they get really pissed off with what they call the airport bookstore type of intelligence stories, you know, fantasy. <laughs> and the closer you can get to the sluggy, unglamorous reality of it, the better, really. And if we can capture some of those airport bookstalls from the loonies and the fantasists. Because I think we Brits go bonkers over three things, really. Uh, well, certainly two things. Intelligence, spies, and the royal family. And if ever you get a combination of them, like when Anthony Blunt was exposed, it completely takes on a life of its own. <laughs> I remember I, I should have learnt my lesson a few years ago. I said to somebody, you know, I think we're so jaded now with who, who were the Sov agents in Britain that unless the Queen Mother turns out to have been Stalin's lover and indeed a Soviet agent, we wouldn't um, take much notice anymore. I said, was she? <laughs> Doesn't do to joke about these things. I can categorically state that she was neither. But one has to be very careful. Now, the flow of documents since My Secret State was first published eight years ago has been rich and revealing. And let me give you a few examples from the contents of the new edition. Perhaps the most chilling and dramatic come from the plans for the final days and hours of peace before a Third World War, if it had come, would have engulfed the UK and a substantial part of the globe. One piece of detailed planning was kept from ministers. Which of them would have gone to what bunker? And two files have been declassified since the first editions of The Secret State came out, which cover this. One contains the list drawn up for Harold Macmillan in September 1961 as the Berlin crisis worsened, and the other, the comparable list shown to Harold Wilson in June 66, at a time when we were threatened by nothing more than a sterling crisis, nothing changes, is it, and the possibility of losing to West Germany in the World Cup, nothing changes there either. Only the pair of ministers chosen by Macmillan and Wilson to be their deputies for nuclear retaliation purposes, lest the Prime Minister be out of reach or already wiped out by a bolt from the blue attack, knew of their bunker functions in advance. The others didn't. There's very few of them alive now, but they won't know what their fate was unless and until they've been to the National Archives and found those files or got the new book. This system, by the way, was new in September 1961, and Harold Macmillan signed off the appointment of the retaliation ministers, this is, these deputies, with a characteristic dash of comedy, noir, and Shakespeare allusion. He was told it was time to, to, to take the decision. And he wrote in his scrawly handwriting, because he had a bullet through his hand at the Battle of Luce, very hard to read, I agree the following. First a grave digger, Mr. Butler. Second grave digger, Mr. Lloyd. HM, 6th of October, 1961. <laughs> Apart from the deputies, oh, Harold Wilson's in 1966 were Burke Bowden and Dennis Healy. None of the others, as I was saying, knew their fate until now, really. It's interesting and reassuring for some of us of a certain age 
that Harold Wilson kept his mercurial and a drink-prone deputy, George Brown, well away from nuclear retaliation duties. <laughs> I have to tell you, when the first edition of The Secret State came out, I went on Radio 5 Live, which I do not recommend, actually, for the sensitive. And a nice man called Nicky Campbell had me on with the American cast of The Full Monty, who were strangers to the Cold War, as far as I could see. And I talked about, I'll explain again in a minute, the nuclear retaliation drills, having two ministers designated lapsed in the 90s but was restored after 9-11 and I described this and the phones went red it being a phone-in programme with people wanting to know if John Prescott was one of them <laughs> the nation was paralysed and obsessed with this and I said I couldn't say who it was in fact I didn't know but I knew that he wasn't one of them because it isn't based on the hierarchy the ministerial hierarchy it's a personal thing so that all runs on now, Brown, in fact, in June 1966, was earmarked for the World War III War Cabinet Bunker under Box Hill in the Wiltshire Cotswolds, the famous Turnstile, as it was codenamed, to which Wilson, his Foreign Secretary Michael Stewart, his Cabinet Secretary Burke Trent, plus 23 other senior military, official and diplomatic advisers, would have been whisked from Horse Guards Parade at the very last minute by RAF helicopters if preventive diplomacy had failed. And we know this from another file that's come out, codenamed Operation Visitation. When I first wrote the book, Visitation was in uh, the little shorthand summary that was given to the Queen. Nobody told the Queen about the drill for the end of her kingdom until 1965. She knew about her bit, which I'll come back to in a minute. And she was given the code names and the sequences. And I thought Visitation was um, a suitably Old Testament notion was the code for nuclear retaliation but it wasn't, it was for the helicopters to come from RAF Little Risington to Northolt to refuel to Horse Cards Parade to whisk them away to the caution bunker and there is a god of the archives um, ladies and gentlemen and this scholarly deity shone on me a year ago after the cabinet office had convened a high level meeting to agree to my request for a central government war book, the one that pulled all the drills together, kept by the cabinet office, to be declassified. And they produced the 1970 version for me, of which more in a moment. But after this meeting, a veteran official, who's still there, who'd given long service to what in the Cold War was called the cabinet office's overseas and defence secretariat, remembered that they'd had a special cupboard, access to which was restricted to a tiny handful of officials, in which they kept the war books and the retaliation drills, and he wondered where it was. And a search was instituted, and they found it in the storeroom. And mercifully, they found the key as well. <laughs> and in it, a war books from stretching from 1935 to 1979. It also contains, and it's the human side of it that is so fascinating, going into that world where people had to professionally peer into the abyss for a good part of their career, these officials. It contained the royal warrants, ready for the Queen to sign, granting pretty well absolute powers under the emergency legislation that would have been rushed through Parliament in the last days of peace before Parliament was prorogued for the duration of the war. Absolute powers to cabinet ministers who were going to be in charge of the bunkers, the 12 mini-kingdoms in England, Scotland and Northern Ireland into which we would have been divided um, for post-attack and post-attack purposes, if any purposes were possible indeed after the attack. And there's the Royal Warrant, and it reads like this. Elizabeth II, per the British Constitution is a beautiful thing, even unto Armageddon it is perfect in its drills. 
And that's not a criticism, it's a form of admiration, really. It reads like this. Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, of our other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, to our, and this is where the name of the Cabinet Minister would have been inserted, greeting. I always like that bit. I mean, it's just what you want, isn't it? <laughs> World's going to end in 20 minutes. Greeting. <laughs> In pursuance of Regulation 4.2 of the Defence Machinery of Government Regulations, we hereby appoint you the said name again to be a Regional Commissioner for the purposes of those regulations, given at our Court of St James, blank, the day of 19 blank, in the year of our reign, blank, by Her Majesty's command. And at the same time, and this was in the cupboard too, the bunker chiefs would have been given a sealed envelope containing notes of guidance for Regional Commissioners, telling them what their job entailed and which functions prosecution of the war, relationships with foreign powers, would be reserved to the Prime Minister and the War Cabinet in the turnstile bunker under Box Hill. Again, this was never seen by its intended recipients. Again, it was among the gems lost and now found in the Cabinet Office cupboard. Another historical breakthrough, recently of a physical kind this time, was the full avowal of the turnstile bunker and its Cold War purpose by the Ministry of Defence in 2004. When I first visited part of it in 2001, it was still technically a deception, and I suspect that the Russians were still keeping an eye on it from a satellite going over Bath at regular intervals looking for movements on the surface above it. And a good deal of shadow boxing went on when I first went underground into it between me and the marvellous Andy Quinn, who was showing me around, who was then a sergeant in the RAF police and then later became the mine manager as it was called because it's in an old limestone quarry the beautiful Bathstone quarry from which Bath was built and millions of Brits have been within almost shouting distance of it because it's Box Hill is bored through by Brunel's Box Tunnel on the way from Paddington to Bristol via Bath and when you're in it, you're 100 feet below the surface and 50 feet above the railway. And in certain bits, you can hear the trains going through. So every day, within 50 feet of this extraordinary bunker lashed up inside the old quarry, were people roaring down the old Great Western. <laughs> and since 2004, I've visited with my students, BBC journalists and colleagues and former turnstile initiates, um, again, to see the Prime Minister's immensely austere personal suite. You know it's the Prime Minister's. Uh, Macmillan's time because of the telephone directory which we've got and also it's the only one with its own loo and bath and also the map room very close to the Prime Minister's office with its ministerial viewing area like, like in, as in the wall all the war films when you have sort of wafts and things moving stuff about there's a kind of viewing area and um, the map room from where the, the nuclear retaliation would have been launched and that really is very sobering it's only about 40 feet by 20 and being Brits and short of money always and not flash, our equivalent of Dr. Strangelove's big board are two white chipboards about this size, either end of it. And it's an extraordinary place. And it takes you back to that strange world. It's like a Marie Celeste. The telephone exchange is 1960s telephone exchange. <laughs> Uh, quite extraordinary. The canteen, for some of us of a certain age, is a glorious thing to behold because it was those huge great... Every calf had them, every canteen had them. Stots of Oldham, those huge things in which great <laughs> vats of water were prepared and the old white cups and all this. I mean, it's the world we've lost. Quite extraordinary, seeing it all frozen like the Marie Celeste. 
I've um, got some photographs of the turnstile map room and other, and other bits, the, the chip white cups, the Prime Minister's room, in the new book. And the first thing you see when you go down into the quarry, somebody scrawled into the limestone, stuck here for eternity. Because they knew, and the Chiefs of Staff had the documents had been declassified, the moment it started operating from there, the signals traffic would give it away to the SOBs and they would know what it was really and they wouldn't take any chances and they'd put a huge megaton, several megatons, probably hydrogen bomb on top of it, which would have sealed it in, made it a tomb. So the moment you started operating from it, that was it. And the people that had gone down there for the very occasional exercises knew that and so one of them was scratched in the limestone, stuck here for eternity. Again, very mind concentrating. The only cabinet office official meeting that's ever been held there was in September 2008 when Tessa Sterling chaired her last meeting in charge of the Cabinet Office's advisory group on security and intelligence records. And as we worked through the agenda, a fine film of limestone dust accumulated upon our persons. It's very dusty indeed, and very chilly. The Queen, by the way, was not destined for turnstile. The beauties of the, and the practicalities of the British Constitution, as I was saying, had to be preserved because the Queen, as I said at the last election um, when it was hung, the Queen, you see, is a Heineken Lager monarch. There are certain parts of the Constitution that only she can reach and only she can appoint a Prime Minister or dissolve a Parliament, though Parliament would have been dissolved in this case. So she had to be kept separate from the Prime Minister and the War Cabinet. And so the Royal Yacht was her floating bunker. <laughs> it was a complete cover story that it was a hospital ship and it was her floating bunker and it was going to lurk in the sea locks off the northwest of Scotland, moving at night from one to the other because the mountains would have prevented the SOB radar from finding it. And the Home Secretary was designated to go with her. There's no file on this, there's just one whisper of the Royal Yacht in one file that's come out so far. And the Home Secretary with the Duke of Edinburgh and the Queen and her Private Secretary are all Privy Councillors, so the Privy Council could have been quarate to appoint a, a Prime Minister out of the rubble. I mean, it's, you had to think about these things. It is dreadful to contemplate, but all the beauties of the British Constitution are intact, and that's what the Royal Yacht Britannia was for. So if you go on the Royal Yacht, preserved in Leith Dockyard, you'll get the cover story and you can shout bollocks in unison <laughs> when, it's, um, when you hear it on one of those things that you put to your ear, you know? My dear wife was terrified that I was going to do that when we went round and swore me on my honour not to. So I didn't. <coughs> Since the last first editions of the book appeared, um, we've realised that Soviet intelligence was beginning to rumble caution very early on. It was ready for use in 1960. It took a long time to get ready. And in the spring of 1963, MI5 trailed a Russian naval attaché to caution because they couldn't operate more than 50 miles out of London without permission, and they tailed him. I thought it might be Captain Ivanov, who was one of Christine Keeler's lovers, you know, that would have made a terrific mm. story, but he'd been sent home in January, so it was another one. So it wasn't quite the fruity story it might have been. But it was plain that they'd had a whisper of it and that it was vulnerable, therefore, and alternative plans were worked up, which took quite a long time. They were ready by the spring of 1968, and the turnstile-centred arrangements had morphed into a more dispersed and flexible system, again, which has come out in little bits, though not all of it, codenamed Python. We still don't know that much about Python because it forms the basis of the current system. But Python is having several places. 
where ministers would go, not just the Prime Minister, but others who were designated uh, for the purpose. And it's still the basis of today, so it's very, the, the releases, understandably, are very careful. But as part of those releases, part of the Python system was a Royal Fleet Auxiliary vessel, the Angadai, which was for ministers, no doubt, and the Royal Yacht is mentioned in there. That's where it comes up. Now, what other examples of Cold War catch-up history are there in the new edition? The classification of the 1970 government war book has enabled me to reconstruct for the first time in a new chapter called End Games much, though not all, of the sequence of decision-taking by the simulated cabinet and its transition to war committee during Exercise Invaluable, which played out the mercifully fictional lead-up to the global war of October 1968, which began in the scenarios, and the scenarios were always like this, with a change of regime in Moscow to a bunch of real aggressive nasties. It was fictional again, and Brezhnev had repressed the Prague Spring just a few months earlier, but it was an air, a moment of anxiety in the Cold War, the months after the Prague Spring, to say the least. And in the scenarios, international tension triggers serious escalation, it gets out of hand, and World War comes, and it goes up to so-called RL for nuclear release hour. There are 16 chapters in the late 60s, early 70s government war books, and they required the taking of 200 separate decisions, 80 of them by the full cabinet. Now, that's extraordinary. Cabinet governments come back with Cameron, he believes in it. They have proper meetings again with proper papers, minutes taken, briefings. It's quite extraordinary. But, of course, under Tony and Gordon, we didn't, did we? I shouldn't think the Blair cabinet took 80 decisions in 10 years. <laughs> but in this, in this rush to Armageddon, or not this rush, this process to Armageddon, they're going to have to take 80 of them, full cabinet. There's a hidden heroine, a Whitehall heroine, in the story of this strange world of the war books. She was called Mrs. Beryl Grimble, an executive officer in the cabinet office who kept the war books trim and up to date from 1958 to 1973. She was known to her devoted staff, though I suspect not to her face, as the Queen of the War Book or Auntie Beryl. I've tried in vain to find a photograph of her for the book. She's died a while ago, I know that. But systems depend on Mrs. Beryl Grimble's, quite often low down the hierarchy. And there she'd sit in the second floor of the cabinet office, long before computers, cutting and pasting the refinements to the War Book over all those years. She had to live with this stuff every day of her working life from 1958 to 1973. And she's one of several figures in the home, civil and diplomatic services, the military and the intelligence community who really deserve their place in the historical sun now that so many of the innermost secrets of the UK's Cold War secret state can at last be told. And there is an element of justice in that, that that's possible now. Because you couldn't go home and talk about it. You simply couldn't. It must have been a terrible strain. Certainly, I would not have liked to do it myself. I've put quite a lot about those who served the Queen on the dark side in the book. They tend to cluster around the first line of defence, intelligence, and the last, which is the V-bomber crews, and from 1969, the submariner guardians of the deterrent Polaris boats, right through to HMS Vanguard, which is out there this evening as we speak in the North Atlantic. And there's a special new chapter in the book on them called The Human Button, as was the BBC Radio 4 documentary I made about them with my friend, producer Richard Knight, in 2008. We got far more access than I expected for that programme into the Northwood Bunker, where the Prime Minister's firing directive comes from Whitehall. There's two people at every stage. Onto HMS Vanguard, 
right through the firing chain to the end and to the simulated, you'll be glad to hear, not the real firing. With a, with, it's a, the last trigger is a Colt 45 pistol with a wire coming from it. It's an American system. It's quite extraordinary. The real one's a red one kept in a safe, but the practice one is this black one in the, in the missile control room. And again, it's extraordinary being in those places and talking to the people that have to exercise it. There's coverage, too, in the book of what I call the Appendix Z people. Now, Appendix Z was the special part of the government war book dealing with nuclear retaliation procedures, and copies of it were kept separate from the rest of the war book and restricted to very few people. And again, the Appendix Zs turned up in that cabinet office cupboard and uh, were prepared for release, and I think now are at the National Archives. And the, there's a wonderful team in the cabinet office, historical branch, that do all this, uh, Nick Weeks and Alan Glennie, and they prepared all of this stuff for release and the Appendix Z people were the initiates of the initiates. But what was not in um, Appendix Z was, because uh, it's too sensitive, is the system we still now have, which Mr Cameron has, has just done, which is each new Prime Minister has to write down in longhand on four sheets of paper, with nobody looking, the instructions from beyond the grave if he's wiped out by a bolt from the blue and the UK is no more. And they go in the safe of each of the Trident vessels. And the Cabinet Secretary traditionally has done the briefing, though this time the Cabinet Secretary and the new National Security Advisor did the briefing together. And this is when people know their Prime Minister. This is the moment. Because only they can do this. And to their great credit, they always find it a deeply, deeply awesome and sobering business. And that has been done by the new Prime Minister already. But that bit was too sensitive to put in Appendix Z, and as a kind of euphemism, other, other communications will be used, that kind of euphemism, in Appendix Z. The new edition also takes a look at the very swift construction of what I call the new protective state here in the UK since the dreadful events of 9-11. A great deal of it, certainly compared to the Cold War secret state, when the Cold War was still chilling our bones, has been put in the public domain. It's been a remarkably open business compared to the Cold War secret state, which is to Whitehall's great credit. I'm now rapidly trying to catch up with the work and work patterns of David Cameron's new National Security Council, an idea I think whose time has come. Meets every morning on Tuesday, well, every week on Tuesday mornings, proper papers, proper discussion, and it's got its own rhythm already. And it's a big player. I mean, for ancients like Mick and me, it sounds like Arthur Balfour's Committee of Imperial Defence with a bit of IT. <laughs> but that's unkind. It really is a new development, and I think it's a very good one and seems to be working very well so far. Prime Minister's chaired it every time so far, and that's crucial. And it covers the whole span of security in the widest definition. I've also got a treatment of what I call the deals between ministers and the intelligence community as well as between the intelligence community and parliament and the public in an open society like ours. And we can talk about this at quite a discussion time, if you like. But essentially the deals are, I think, the traditions of British intelligence. I'll just give you the main ones. That you use intelligence only for those bits that the normal systems and institutions of national protection can't reach, whether they be the armed forces, the police, customs and revenue, just for those tough bits which you can't get without special technical means or human means. Secondly, that, and this is my old teacher Harry Hinsley used to say, old Bletchley Hand, historian of World War II intelligence, that the great lesson of World War II for us was you always kept separate those who painted the intelligence picture from those who decided what to do on the basis of it. 
and that the people that painted the intelligence picture, whether collectors or analysts, really had the overwhelming duty to speak truth under power. They had to spare their customers nothing. And reality, it had to be. And it's the duty of crown servants of any kind to speak <coughs> truth under power, but it's classically the duty of the intelligence community to do so. And the other deal, I think, is that if the state has to take liberties away for any reason, any emergency reason, it does it to the only the minimum extent possible and for the shortest time possible. That, those are the deals that underpin the traditions of British intelligence. Those are the gold standards, I think. And I cover a bit of that in the book. It's intriguing to think about certain of the continuities and discontinuities of the shift from a Cold War secret state to our own new protective state. The designers of the new protective state were pretty well all shaped by the insider Cold War experience. Um, the, the main one, Sir David Oman, has just published a terrific book called Securing the State, which I do recommend to you. <clears throat> the British notion of career crown service, you see, helps here as well because we have a remarkable continuity inside our civil, diplomatic, military and intelligence services, which I actually think is a huge advantage because we haven't got a politicised crown service. Politicised a little bit round the edges and Tony Blair was dodgy in this department as in many others, but it held, I'm glad to say. Perhaps the swiftest Cold War restoration in the hours and days after 9-11 was the one I mentioned at the beginning, the practice of appointing two ministers as the Prime Minister's deputies for nuclear retaliation. This had lapsed in what now seems that strange limbo period between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Twin Towers. An example of discontinuity within continuity, as it were, is the intelligence secrets and mysteries equation because it's been reversed now. There's no mystery about the intentions of Al-Qaeda and its associates. The mystery is where they are, in which hotel room, which street in our own cities, and what weaponry they've got, and what the targets are. So the secrets and mysteries problems turn around. There's one specially chilling, almost uncannily, uncannily continuous element in the story that nearly spans the entire period covered by the new edition of the book, and it's this. In a report drawn up during the anxious early days of the Korean War, September 1950 in fact, just a year after the West realised the Soviet Union had built an atomic bomb significantly sooner than expected, a highly sensitive Whitehall group operating under the harmless and deliberately misleading title of the Imports Research Committee examined the possibility of a clandestine atomic attack on the United Kingdom in the early hours of a global war launched by Russia. They looked at the contingency of, quotes, the detonation of an atomic bomb in a suicide aircraft, civil one, flying low over a key point. The Imports Research Committee concluded it is possible and there doesn't seem to be any answer to it. The crew of the aircraft, in order to detonate the bomb at the right time, would have to know what their cargo was and would therefore be a suicide squad. Short of firing on every strange civil aircraft that appears over our shores, we know no way of preventing an aircraft that sets out on such a mission from succeeding. Extraordinary. Fast forward now 60 years and consider today's cold rules for national safety, to borrow a phrase of the great historians of empire, Robinson and Gallagher. Think of the planners of 2010 and the small number of ministers, who include the Prime Minister and usually the Home Secretary, there's usually a couple more who have to contemplate and exercise the contingency of another kind of potential suicide civil aircraft flying into UK airspace from the Middle East or North Africa, refusing to answer calls from air traffic control, losing height and soon to pass over the M25. 
and they had the same feelings to feel as their equivalents in the early 1950s, as the RAF typhoons on quick reaction alert from RAF Cunningsby in Lincolnshire in the air and ready to shoot the aircraft down. Most of what I've had to say this evening is about the Cold War-related sections of the book, and it's been a strange, for me, a strange enterprise writing it. I tend to go for books, if I can, about subjects which are perhaps susceptible to Ealing comedy treatment. Books on, books on the British Constitution, for example. <laughs> but even with the relief of it not coming to pass, World War III not coming to pass constantly in mind, it was tough to find any traces of Ealing in this story, but I did find a few, and I'm determined to end on a more cheerful note this evening. <laughs> so I'll now tell you about them. One or two of you here may have heard me tell the first one, so please, I ask for your forbearance. The second, I think, is new. The old story first. In the early 1960s, British intelligence warned that Soviet missiles could reach our beloved soil very swiftly if the Russians launched a bolt from the blue nuclear attack, either with low-trajectory missiles from East Germany or from nuclear, from, from nuclear missile-carrying submarines in the North Sea. And plans were laid to alert Harold Macmillan. He didn't want an officer with him in the codes like the American president had. He didn't want the expense and the fuss. And um, plans were laid to alert Harold Macmillan if he were out of town in the Prime Ministerial limousine. And a cunning plan of Baldrickian proportions was developed, whereby the PM's car would be linked to the key Whitehall operations room via the system then used by the Automobile Association for contacting the boys in those rather flash-brown uniforms who rode its motorbikes. Remember the Knights of the Road who would salute if they saw your car with an AA badge? Those boys. <laughs> this is long before the days of car phones, let alone mobiles. So three official cars are kitted out in the spring of 1962, in time, as it turned out, for the unanticipated Cuban Missile Crisis the following autumn. The exchange of letters at the end of May 1962 between Brian Saunders, Private Secretary to the Minister of Works, who was then responsible for the government carpool, and the very polished Tim Bly, Macmillan's Principal Private Secretary No. 10, has to be read pretty well in full to be sabred properly. Saunders tells Bly that the radios have now been fitted in three cars. I understand that these radios are to be maintained by Pies, that's an electronics firm in Cambridge, now gone, and it will presumably be necessary for someone to make a daily or weekly call to the AA control stations as a check that they're in working order. I understand that if an emergency arose while the Prime Minister was on the road, the proposal is to use the radio to get into a telephone. Perhaps we should see that our drivers are provided with four pennies. Now, in the early 60s... <laughs> I am not making this up. In the, in the early 60s, some of you remember, you had to put four pennies in and press button A before you could get through. Now, I, I should hate to think, this is what Saunders says, I should hate to think of you trying to get change from a sixpence from a bus conductor while those four minutes are ticking by. In fact, the four-minute warning turns out to be three and a half, according to some of the new doctors, which is a real shame. Uh, well, I'll tell you why it's a real shame, because after the Cuban Missile Crisis, being a heterosexual grammar school boy in Gloucestershire, we all worked out what we do in the last four minutes of life when the hooter sounded and um, you can imagine the conclusion because the girls high school was just across the lane and down the road and four minutes was just enough for that and um, <laughs> three and a half minutes wasn't and I remember saying this at an intelligence history conference at Griganog of the kind that Mick used to run and a, a, a lady in British intelligence who, whose brothers were at school with me was in the high school at that time and I won't name her, of course, and she said, you know, you shouldn't have worried, Peter, because we had exactly the same idea, and we would have met halfway, so we'd have been all right. 
But anyway, it's quite a shock finding it in three and a half minutes. But back to the Saunders Bly correspondence. Tim Bly, it turned out, was on top of the problem. Replying to Saunders, he wrote, the first sentence of your last paragraph is correct, but a shortage of pennies should not present quite the difficulties which you envisage. <laughs> Whilst it may be desirable, when motoring, to carry a few pennies in one's pocket, occasions do arise when, by some misfortune or miscalculation, they have been expended, and one is penniless. In such cases, however, it is a simple matter to have the cost of any, any telephone call transferred by dining 100 and requesting reversal of the charge. <laughs> and this does not take any appreciable extra time. This system works in both normal and STD, that subscriber trunk dialing, telephone kiosks, and our drivers are aware of it. This being Whitehall, there was always a fallback plan and it was in Bly's mind. We are considering the possibility of this office taking up membership of the AA, <laughs> which would give our drivers keys to AA and RAC boxes throughout the country, so that's all right then. That's me, not Bly. Perfect. Now, for those sensitive to questions of national identity, only the Brits of all the nuclear powers in 1962 and those to come could have dreamt up a system like that. And if the file containing the Saunders-Bly correspondence had leaked to the KGB resident in London, he would have thought it was a deception, if not a spoof. <laughs> would he not? Now, my other ealing moment is this, and I'll finish with this. For years among the war bookers, people that had to do all that, a story swirled around about a leak, not to the Russians nor to the press, but to a part of Whitehall which wargaming, as opposed to the real thing, was not meant to reach the Civil Service Catering Organisation, or Cisco, as it was known, in Basingstoke. Now, thanks to my friend Brian Gilmore, who played the Prime Minister in one of the 1970s exercises, it can now be confirmed. I do have an enduring memory, Brian said to me, of being briefed. Should I discover that I'd received a message which required me to communicate with the Chief Executive of the Civil Service Catering Organisation, I was on no account to do so. Now, why was that? Because in a previous exercise, the Cisco teleprinter had tapped into action and instructed the head of Cisco to go out and buy enough provisions to stock a range of bunkers in the south and the southwest for three months. Scarcely pausing to say Wilco, said Brian, he did so. The cash and carries of Hampshire were raided for tins of beans and peas and sausages, and the costs were hidden away and some obscure vote heading by the civil service department had spread over a number of years to prevent the treasury from finding out. <laughs> <laughs> As to the fate of the peas and the beans and the sausages, that remains a classic Cold War mystery to this very day. Very Thank good. you very much. Thank you. Only Hennessy could have managed that. A sobering story told with humour, panache, characteristic style. Let me begin, however, with a, a serious question, yeah. if I may, just to, to abuse the position of the chair. Peter, you mentioned the, the Korean War, uh, and the name of your chair is named after Mr. Attlee, who flew to the United States at the time, worrying that the, uh, the then Truman administration may indeed take nuclear action, a nuclear attack on, on China. Uh, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis in um, when I was walking behind Bertrand Russell at the time. <laughs> uh, and um, you, you briefly touched on the Reagan years in the early, very early 1980s, the war gaming which was then going on on the NATO side, the American side, which had Mrs. Thatcher became involved in that and uh, 
Which of those, are any of those moments in, in the context of what you're saying the, the most dangerous? Or are they all equally dangerous, or what? what, what well, as AJP Taylor used to say, deterrence only has to fail once in the nuclear <laughs> age. Yeah. And yeah. You, you know this better than I do, Mick, but the conferences to mark the anniversary of Cuba in 2002 that the Russians came to, the submariners, showed us that it was far more precarious than even we realized on Saturday, October the 27th, 1962, because uh, a, a, a Soviet diesel submarine with one nuclear torpedo one was being pinged by the US Navy, kept down, and they had to come up and breathe in those days, not like the nuclears. And the temperature was unbelievable. The captain lost it and said, our Navy is going to acquit itself with honor because we can't go on like this, prepare the torpedo. And the political officer and the executive officer overrode him. Now, if that nuclear torpedo had gone, heaven knows. Mm. The U-2 was shot down that afternoon. Mm. And also, as we now know, the United States president didn't know that, that tactical nuclear warheads were already there, ready to drop on American troops on the beachheads if they did invade. So it's far more precarious than we realized. It's the closest the British nuclear deterrent has come to readiness. Yeah. Macmillan ordered only 15 minutes readiness on the Saturday. He just read Barbara Tuckman's The Proud Tower, uh -huh. and he was determined not to have war by timetable or through inadvertence. And the measures were to be taken unobtrusively and to go to 15 minutes. But if you talk to the Vulcan and Victor pilots, they were cockpit readiness for a while, that Saturday and that Sunday. Mm. And they remained on 15 minutes readiness until Bonfire Day, the 5th of <laughs> November, 1962. Yeah. So five minutes readiness, even though the 15 minutes was what had been authorized. Um, and it's amazingly chilling, yeah. amazing. We had a witness seminar at the Center for Contemporary British History with the Vulcan and the Victor pilots about Cuba. It was very, very interesting. Um, I'm gonna put him in my 1960s book. He's not in this one. But the captain of a Vulcan, at Cunningsby, I think he was, uh, they were sitting in uh, uh, garden chairs by their Vulcan watching the yellow sun hydrogen bomb being loaded that weekend. And suddenly his South African navigator radar, very tall man, uncoiled himself from his chair and went and put the CND sign on the yellow sun <laughs> with the pen he had for doing his China graph stuff in the yeah. cockpit. And his captain said, what are you doing that for? He said, well, if this bastard goes off, those buggers are right. <laughs> and so it would have been. So would have Do you been. know, there are so many reasons for being thankful to state the absolute obvious that the Cuban Missile Crisis didn't tip it. Yes. And one of them, you know, which haunts me, is that if it had, Cliff Sodding Richard would have been the finest flowering of British pop music. Because <laughs> the Beatles hadn't got to a number one snob. Yeah. I mean, it's unendurable to think of it, isn't Just it? Just think about it. The end of the world yeah. and Cliff Richard. There we go. <laughs> Uh, okay, we're going to start taking some questions and answers. Uh, sir, if you could just project your voice. Uh, won't bother about the microphone. Oh, you're all right. Yeah. You've got a great voice. Great. Terrific. Um, I read the first uh, version of your uh, book. I haven't got down to the second one yet. And what struck me was how much of it's um, you That's right. Very careful book of um, reconstruction, certain amount of leaking, certain amount of information, yeah. slides for these. But an awful lot of it, um, I think one can say, got right. Yes. Um, what does that tell us, do you think, A, about the nature of official secrecy and its effectiveness? Mm. And secondly, um, are you not limiting your own research field, perhaps, or your research? 
research methodology a bit too much by saying I'm not interested in anything until I can get it out of queue. Oh no, that's not. I don't take that All view. Right. <laughs> okay, yeah, two two great questions. No, I don't yeah. take that view. You're quite right. And also, Duncan Campbell as well got an awful lot out war plan. Um, but what you fascinating, and they took us a long way. But unless, the other thing to remember, and uh, is that very few people knew the whole picture. Perhaps the cabinet secretary knew more than anybody else at the time. And you have to remind your students that. But now we've got the documents for a whole wave of this because of the need-to-know principle. Very few people knew that much. They knew their slice and no more. And what the documents do is enable you to go much wider. They're not complete, they're not the complete picture. Indeed, when the first edition of the book came out, there was a dinner in the city for ex-Foreign Office diplomats who were working in the city. And quite a lot of them had chaired the Joint Intelligence Committee. Only a handful had done the nuclear retaliation procedures in the Overseas and Defence Secretariat. And the JIC people had no idea about all of this. They had no idea at all. Mm. And it produced another good story. I mean, the great thing about the documents, too, is that because of the obligation as a confidentiality, the survivors won't talk to you until they see the colour of the documents, you see, because they're not given to leaking, although obviously there were leaks, as you say. And on this particular story, I can say who it is because he doesn't mind, it's Sir Michael Palliser. Mm. And he was the Foreign Affairs and Defence Private Secretary to Harold Wilson in the late 60s. And he was coming back from Chequers with Harold in the Prime Ministerial Rover when the AA phone went off. The end of the world phone went off. And by what coincidence, it's incredible really, it turned out to be a, a real AA call, and it was his wife and his car, his Ford Zephyr, in trouble at the bottom of Haverstock Hill. <laughs> so it wasn't the end of the world. And when he gets home several hours later, he says to his wife, I gather the AA rescued you. She, she thought he had absolutely extrasensory powers, and he couldn't tell her why. But it was interesting seeing these diplomats, after they'd read the book, telling each other what they did and what they didn't know. And they all had astronomical clearances, but they all knew just their own bits. And we'll never get the complete stuff. Um, of course not. But we have got a long way now, and... Uh, you're quite right. It's, they, did, they did get extraordinarily interesting things. But was it Peter Laurie? No, he was the actor. It was Peter Laurie, wasn't it, who did City Streets? Spelled differently than Peter Laurie. And, and Duncan Campbell. They did get an awful lot of it. Um, but it's the, it, there's still a, there will be. It's not, I won't do it because I'm, I'm getting old. But the, there will come a time when one or other of our research students will do the book that really pulls all this together because it would be quite enormous because it was a huge enterprise and it absorbed a, a, very, a lot of the very best people in all the Crown services, all of this. And uh, it's an extraordinary story and I, don't, I barely scratched it in the first editions. So I'm scratching a bit more now but there's still an awful long way to go, an awful lot of integrating. There's a wonderful PhD I examined in Manchester in... Um, in January, Melissa Smith, who's now working in Whitehall, and she, for example, went into the Home Office Scientific Advisors branch, and they were the ones that had to spend all their lives, some of them, looking at what would be left after a, a megaton hydrogen bomb attack on the UK. And again, one of the things that interests me is the human question of how you keep going if you have to spend all your time on that sort of stuff. Because you'll never harden yourself against it, nor should you. But what they did, and Melissa found this, was they had their own magazine, their house magazine. They called it Fission Fragments. And they started it in 1961, I think it was, when, some of you will remember, local newspapers had a great fad for spot-the-ball competitions. Do you remember that we had goalkeeper like this? And you put a cross where the ball was. And the, spot, the, the equivalent of spot-the-ball competition was a, half a page with fallout plumes. And it was called Spot the Bomb. 
<laughs> and I can understand why they had to do it, you know. And there's a friend of mine who um, is in the book, uh, and his picture's in the book, and he, he came down to the turnstile bunker with me, and he played the Secretary of State for Defence in one of the 70s transition to war exercises, because they didn't want ministers to do it for themselves, and some ministers wanted to do it, so the compromise was they could watch it on early CCTV. And in those days, uh, it was a Latin-speaking senior civil service, and it always ended, said my friend, in the small hours of a Thursday morning with nuclear exchange. And so, as it happened, he turned to the camera and said, Seek Transit Gloria Thursday, which for those of you who didn't have O level, <laughs> Seek Transit Gloria on Monday. It's what the Monsignor mumbles at the Pope to tell him, you know, watch it, matey. You two are mortal. So passes the things of this world. And Alec Hume was watching and said, Who is that very facetious young man? <laughs> but Mrs. Thatcher insisted on playing herself, so they had a separate one on a Saturday morning with a highly reluctant Lord Carrington as Foreign Secretary coming in. <laughs> and he didn't tell me this, somebody else did. Uh, pretending that Jimmy Carter was on the phone for the joint decision-taking for the stuff that was dual-key, in effect, mm. you know. And she says, Peter, the President wants to know, is this the time? Do we do it? I have no idea, Margaret. I said, yeah. <laughs> just hear it. But the, we were the only nuclear power in those days that whose capital war room was above ground. It's Cobra, where they do all the emergencies now. They've rejigged it. But in those days, Cobra was where it is now, with a nuclear release room attached to the end of it. So that's where they did it. We only had an underground bunker, Pindar, under the Ministry of Defence after the Cold War was over. So the Cold War secret state was never complete, you see. But again, the Russians wouldn't have believed that, would they? If they'd had a leak saying the British bunker is above ground in the cabinet office yeah. in number 70 Whitehall, they would have said, pousse off, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm moving around. Um, can I pick up another question? Another hand going up? Over there. Sure. Um, yeah, over there, gentlemen. If you could just project your voice, please. Just stand up. Stand up. Right. He's up. No. Well, there were retaliation plans. The V-bomber crews uh, studied them. They studied the terrain. They never went to the start line, which is six degrees south of Norway. That's where the start line is in the V-bomber days. And uh, you, if, if it was happening, you would have gone airborne and gone to the, towards the start line high. And unless you got the, the code name to carry on, you came back. The fallback there um, was... Uh, BBC Light Programme, the Droitwich Aerial, and they were going to insert a code name into Educating Archie, or whatever was on, to tell them to carry on. If other you better explain what Educating Archie well, was, I think. Well, those of Most us people here to the Light Programme, that, well, Educating Archie had the, the radio ventriloquist. He was a ventriloquist, so yes. <laughs> um, today, it's the Today Programme. If, if the submarine can't hear the Today Programme for several days allowing for Sundays, it knows that Britain's gone. Uh, so the BBC is terribly important to all this. But they were targets, and it wasn't fantasy. They knew where they were and all the rest of it, and the missiles were programmed, different codes for them. Some ministers did object. The person who, ra who raised the morality question, we now know from the Cabinet Secretary's notebook, not from the Cabinet Minutes, in 1954, to the going thermonuclear, a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs, mm. was Churchill himself. Mm. And he read out a leading article 
um, an article from Donald Soper in the Methodist Recorder. Oh. Donald used to run the Methodist Church just up the road in Kingsway and was yeah. a great um, anti-bomb man, great man, Donald Soper. So Churchill himself raised it. Um, in Jim Callaghan's government, when they went for the Chevalier improvement to Polaris and then getting the preparations ready for Trident, although the decision wasn't taken, he left that for the incoming government, or himself, if he mm. was going to win the 79 election. He had a cabinet... It wasn't a cabinet committee, it was a ministerial group, the existence of which was kept from the rest of them, the four of them. Mm. And Michael Foote, I'm sure, knew it was going on, but it wasn't a proper cabinet committee and it was kept away from the full cabinet because it's very difficult for certain Labour ministers, obviously. Mm. Um, and they usually kept it in a small group, a very small group. Harold Wilson had the smallest group of all in 64 because he'd given the impression in the manifesto he was going to pull out of Polaris, mm. although the wording was ambiguous. They decided they would carry on and they put it to a bigger cabinet committee and then to the full cabinet. And this isn't in the minutes, but this is Dennis Healy recalling it. They decided they wanted to carry on and they thought of all the objections that CND-type ministers might put forward and so on. But the objection they hadn't anticipated, because it was bonkers, came from George Brown. And it was a question of how many submarines. They decided they would, a bit later, they'd go down from the five plan to four. But George said, why don't we go down to three? because it would mean if we get down to three, there won't be always one of them out there on patrol. So we'll have a nuclear bomb, but we won't have the moral opprobrium of being a nuclear power, because there won't always be one out there. <laughs> and nobody had prepared an answer to this, because it was crackers. And Michael Stewart, you will remember, was Education Secretary, a very quiet man, and he said, it reminds me of the Fulham Cooperative Society in the 30s when our great rivals Lipton's opened an off-license <laughs> and did a roaring trade. And we met, we were mainly nonconformists, he said, and we decided we had to do something about Lipton's competition. And indeed, we would open an off-license, but we would only store, only sell inferior wine, which nobody would want to buy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the moment passed. So it does come up, it does flicker yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, through the years. Certainly it does, yes. Has it been stronger on the Labour side, or has it been more of a problem, or not? Well, it's never the right time, is it? There's always no. the doctrine of unright time. And they all say, if my bug in the Cabinet room was working in December 2007, I think it was, when the Blair Cabinet took the decision, there wasn't a single dissenter, no. as the Prime Minister's press secretary said, stuff full of CXCND, several of them were friends of mine, and it's never the right time. The world is an uncertain and a nasty place. And people tend to say, if we weren't in the business, we wouldn't get into it, but as we are. And then the clinching argument, because they always have to tell themselves a story or two, is we can't have the French as the only nuclear power in mm. Europe, can we? Exactly. And they show no signs of ever wanting to give up. Exactly. And um, it's very interesting, the French. When I was um, on HMS Victoria, so just over a year ago, for its dummy run for a test firing after its midlife refit off Port Canaveral, mm. the American admirals on old as well, um, because uh, the two navies verify each other's procedures, you know. And it was very interesting being with the American admirals. They'd not been on one of our Trident boats before, and they'd commanded the Ohio's, they're big, bigger than ours. And admiral, as we're going down from the casing down through the ladders into the wardroom, they kept bumping their heads. And they said, bloody short there. I said, well, you eat too much protein in adolescence. It's your own fault. And then admiral number two says, what a wonderful laundry. We have crap laundries on ours. And then we get into the wardroom, which is Mm. Very nice. And Admiral number one says, carpets. And our Admiral says, Wilton, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, 
And then we get into this business of how a nation's character is expressed in its nuclear weapons carrying submarines. They've, they've been on everybody's except the Chinese. And the French ha have wood panelling, oak, walnut, whatever it is, flowers, and artificial, and a fish tank. <laughs> the Russians is all stainless steel, but they have a sauna and a plunge. And the Brits and Americans are obsessed with fire. It's just for Formica, picture of the Queen, Duke of Edinburgh, yeah. or the previous vessel carrying the name of the boat, and all very austere. And you could advance, could you not, an interpretation of national character, which is very fashionable these days, from how they kit out our submarines. But the American admirals are very interesting. The, the only submarine attack submarine I went on once, Peter, was in San Diego Harbour, and I couldn't go on a US one, which I wanted to because it looked bigger and sleeker. Yeah. But there was a, an attack submarine, a British attack submarine in a harbour, so I went on to this. And I, I, it's very, very interesting all the things you're describing, but the man who introduced me, his name was Shaughnessy. And I said, where are you from? He said, at Tipperary. I said, yeah, what do we do on a British submarine? You know, so it's a fascinating kind of, uh, kind of stories. You kind it's of all male, these submarines. Oh. There's a tremendous range of accents. Yeah. It's like central casting. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the submarines are very interesting, and they're very witty. And the, the military hierarchy is there, but it's much understated compared to surface vessels or the army because everybody's a specialist any one of them can lose the boat it's fascinating and it's a very tough it. physical environment oh, yeah. I mean silence and things anyway there was a gentleman over here who had his hand up yeah yes. please thanks yeah thank you um, given your given your studying of um, the specifically Britain but um, I assume you have some knowledge of most of Western Europe's um, plans for uh, in the event of a nuclear attack, do you think that there was any chance of any kind of positive outcome of the Cold War, or would it literally been the destruction of civilization? It's been terrible. The, 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 the Chilius document I didn't mention, it was declassified in 2002 for my research students. It's called the Strath Report, and it was commissioned by Winston Churchill in 1954 as Prime Minister when the Salves got to the thermonuclear stage properly. Well, in fact, they didn't until 55, but as good as they did in 53, 54. And it was a study of what 10, 10 megaton Russian hydrogen bombs would do to the UK. Mm. And there were 46 million of us then, and 12 million would have been killed straight away, 4 million seriously injured straight away, and within weeks, radiation sickness would have killed many millions more. And... The implication of Strath, in fact they said so, was that you couldn't carry on as a nation in any recognisable form. Mm. You'd need military rule in the, in the worst affected areas, at least for a time. And they said it would be beyond the imagination until it happened. And this was so sensitive that a, a copy was given on a personal basis to each cabinet minister, but they couldn't keep it. And it's the most extraordinary document, even now, to read. Quite extraordinary. And once we'd reached the thermonuclear stage, that was it, really, for a country of our size. I mean, atomic attack would have been absolutely unendurable as well. But the thermonuclears, just too dreadful to contemplate. And um, all the people I've ever talked to that were engaged in it in any level, whether airmen, sailors, uh, military planners, war gamers, the ministers that had to go through the drills and so on, were changed by it forever. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? Talking to Dennis Healy was fascinating because he was the alternative retaliator, one of the two, for Wilson in his first governments and right throughout the Wilson and Callaghan governments in the 70s. I think Dennis was longest-serving retaliator. And he said to me he wouldn't have pressed the button because deterrence would have failed. There's only two people who have ever said what they would do. One was Jim Callaghan, 
on the record, said he would have done it if he'd had to, but if he'd survived, he'd never have forgiven himself. Nobody else has said. Mm. And the letters they write for the submarines are destroyed unread when the premiership changes. So unless they tell us, we don't know. And most of them are unwilling to say, for understandable reasons. But um, mm. Dennis, Dennis being Dennis, did say. Mm. And I have to say, that would have been my position too. Mm. That what's the point if deterrence has failed? Mm. Um, unleashing the British nuclear weapon system that would leave many, many millions more dead. Mm. Mm. Dreadful, dreadful mm. business. It also led President Reagan to a very similar kind of conclusion. Yes, I mean, it did. The image of Reagan, of course, is the cowboy and the hawk, yeah. which in some sense rhetorically he was. But when he went through exactly the same kind of exercise you're talking about, Peter, yeah. the shock, first of all, not knowing and then knowing not realising this would be the whole destruction of American society as a, as a functioning society. Yeah. And it turned him really into yes. an interestingly different kind turned of... Turned him peasant. into the Reagan of Reykjavik. Reagan of Reykjavik. Uh, and, and Reagan who believed that deterrence uh, you know, was, a, was almost an immoral, yeah. an immoral doctrine. It was a fascinating kind of transformation. Yeah. One okay. over here. One over there, please, sir. Hold on a sec. Get the machine. Microphone. All right. Well, the point is... Yeah. But the point is, Professor Hennessy, that the British state did, uh, did continue to make provision in this awful eventuality, as you've uh, explained. And they, you know, the Prime Minister was prepared to face the possibility of continuing to be Prime Minister in some form or other. However, my question, if I may, is uh, you've spoken about the British state. Do you know if other West German states, France, Italy, Portugal, Spain, made similar provision, please? Everybody had a, in NATO had a, government, had a government war book, and it was all coordinated, the exercises of it, from Brussels. We did an, a national one alongside as well, including our own firing chain. But the, I've not seen any of these. I've got enough trouble sorting out our own documents. But it's the nuclear powers one. It's just France, the United States, and us. Mm. But the other interesting thing about these war books, in the 1975 one came out, the inquest was very interesting. You don't always get the inquest declassified. Maybe they're not being kept. And it went nuclear far sooner than the scenario writers meant. And I mentioned this to somebody from that era. And he said no bad thing. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the Sovs had agents inside NATO, one of whose primary task was to get these inquests back to their controllers. And this sent them a very useful message that don't even contemplate it because it's going to go nuclear very fast. Mm. So there's games with it, not games, because it's not games in the sense of playing, but it's war games within war games. But the prime, there, was, there were plans for the post-war continuity of the state, as it was called, but they had no idea if it was going to work. And that's what everybody says. Sir Roderick Braithwaite, mm. who was chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee, ambassador in Moscow, when the first book came out, said these, these plans were inescapable, necessary, and lunatic. And I think that captures it in one, doesn't it? Captures it in one. Because civil defence was wholly inadequate to the task. Because from the mid-50s onwards, after the Strath Report, the chiefs of staff would always say, you can have the bomb or you can have shelters. And what use will shelters be if it's hydrogen bomb anyway? You can't have a deterrent and shelters. Take your choice. And ministers always went for the bomb. Active defence rather than passive. Well, active in the sense of weaponry. Mm -hmm. And that happened. William Lloyd George, the son of the great Lloyd George, was Home Secretary and tried, fought like hell as Home Secretary, to get a shelter policy but failed completely. And we weren't alone in having hugely inadequate provision. I think the only countries that 
had anywhere near remotely adequate provision for this was Switzerland, Norway, and one other, I forget what it was, might be Sweden. But everybody else was utterly, utterly vulnerable. Hmm. I'll take, I think we take uh, one more. There's a gentleman at the front, yeah, if you could. Uh... Yes, wait for the machine. It's a, it's a very simple question that it's about looking forward. Is it possible to project what the secret state is or will be like in the internet age, yeah. given the nature of computers, codes, and what drives it, what it will be like in 20 years' time? Well, the Cabinet Office last year set up a special cyber unit. I'm hopeless on technology, as you could see. I even call a microphone the machine. So I'm the last person to ask. But the, the real worry is keeping cyber out of all this, wrecking all the communication systems. And the Chinese are the ones on that. Absolutely stunningly good. I mean, the Chinese and the Russians have not stopped their intelligence effort against us. They just didn't stop at all. Um, and the RAF go up twice a week now because they're putting the old bear bombers down off Stornoway to test out the air defense systems. It's uh, deja vu all over again, isn't it? It's not, of course, because it's not the, there isn't that threat and it's not on the magnitude as it was before. But uh, it's, it's still around. It's still around. And uh, the intelligence effort is really very, very formidable. Some people have thought it was flattering to us that the subs always put so much effort into us, you know. Um, and they had their success at penetrating bits. The other bit of the secret state that always fascinates me is how, this is going to surprise some of you, how balanced MI5 were about all this. The assessments of the Communist Party of Great Britain, they didn't treat it as the enemy within at all. They said it's a legitimate political party. The working class members are concerned with health, education and welfare. And very impressive people. It's the sodding intellectuals we're worried about. <laughs> Particularly the concealed ones. They love the working class members of the CPG, but they couldn't stand the thinkers. Uh, and uh, they, they were determined not to go down a McCarthyite route with the purge procedure and positive vetting and all the rest of it. There was no naming and shaming. Some people were removed and some people were put. Um, Ministry of Education was where you were sent if, if you were uh, no, thought to be. Um, the GPO for a long time, not the bits that did the communications. I mean, seriously, it was a deliberate effort not to be Americans when the positive vetting started. That, again, is another touch of healing because Sir John Winifrith, who was the establishment's man in the Treasury, chaired the, Catholic, the, the official committee on positive vetting after the Fuchs case. And well, it was underway before the Fuchs case exploded. And to make active inquiries into people going into sensitive posts rather than just checking the files. And I said to him, I took him these files down to the farm he lived on in retirement in Romney Marsh. He was a lovely man. And he, he said to me, I can't bear having these things on my kitchen table. It doesn't seem right that they're out. So I said to him, you must have been the first person to have been positively vetted if you invented the system. He said, no, it took years to get round to me. It's <laughs> 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 lovely man. But anyway, we prevailed. Thank God for that. So reasons to be cheerful. One, two, three. Thank you very much. <laughs> very much. Um, just one final uh, little piece of information. As you know, this is the London School of Economics, which means, therefore, we sell things. Peter's book is on sale outside, although that's not in that shape or form. And Peter will be out there to do the signing, but he says he'll only sign the book if you buy it.
I didn't say that. No, I'm saying that. I'm just parodying it. But anyway, thank you again for this evening and uh, and a good trip home. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter.